Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about how tech and innovation are making the world a better place. And Building Tomorrow is actually one of those innovations. As a podcast, we're part of a new mass media form, one that promises to disrupt American culture and politics in profound ways over the next several decades. But we don't have to approach the question of what that world looks like blind or might look like. Podcasts are not, obviously, the first ever disruptive new media. And so I thought I'd bring on a fellow historian who specializes in studying how one of the last new media forms changed America, and among other things, gave us Donald Trump. That media was talk radio, and the historian is Dr. Brian Rosenwald, the co-editor-in-chief of Made by History, a daily Washington Post history section. His new book is Talk Radio's America, How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Took Over the United States. Welcome to the show, Brian. Hey, I'm happy to do it. So maybe to help um, our listeners understand just how dramatic of a change talk radio was in the late 80s and 90s, um, what was the media landscape like before that? In the you know, like 70s, early 80s, if you're a conservative looking for conservative voices on the radio, what were you going to find pre-talk radio? So let me get myself in trouble with our colleagues in, in the world of history. Because um, the story is we're not supposed to talk about counterfactuals. Um, you know, things that might have been different, you know, well, if this happened, then this would have happened, because at, at the end of the day, no one knows. But I'm pretty sure that if Rush Limbaugh never comes along, that we don't get something that sounds like this in, in that moment. It might have come along later, but I'm not sure that we get it in, in the late 80s, early 90s. What the media was before then was something, first of all, AM radio is in bad shape. AM radio is struggling because FM radio sounds better for music. And music has migrated to FM, and they have these kind of path-breaking rock stations that break out in the 60s and 70s on FM. And with music, um, has, well, because music sounds better, uh, listeners are going to FM. And as listeners go to FM, so does the advertising dollars. And that's not good when you're a business. So AM radio needs something different. Um, and, and talk radio to that point, it goes back to uh, 1960 in L.A. is the first all-talk station. But it's something that sounds very different. The paradigms are people like Larry King um, overnight on the mutual broadcasting system. Uh, mutual doesn't even exist anymore, so it tells you how long ago it was. But it's an interview-based program where a lot of the hosts actually lean left. And, but you don't hear the perspective. You know, Larry King might interview a newsmaker, and then he turns around, and, and he might be talking to a caller about the abominable, abominable snowman in like a three o'clock hour or UFOs or, you know, whatever interesting callers came along to make for a good show. And, you know, the, the local stars were people like a guy named Michael Jackson, who I, I feel bad. I've been saying in interviews that he was British. He's South African. Uh, and, and I'm not talking about for everyone out there saying, oh, wait, wait a second. You're the singer. No, no, no. I don't mean the guy who can moonwalk. I'm talking about a guy who was, it was a South African gentleman who was left of center, but it was a very interview-based program. He interviewed presidents. He interviewed mobsters. He once asked a mobster about where the bodies were buried, you know, very uncomfortably. You know, it was a very you know, big star for, like, decades in L.A. And, and these guys fit the axiom that all talk radio to be successful, except overnight, had to be local. Um, but it was this kind of milk-a-toast uh, interview-based format, um, caller-based format, where you really didn't hear the opinions of the host. One of the other stars um, was a, a guy in New York by the name of Barry Farber. And, and Barry Farber was every bit as conservative as Rush Limbaugh was. And when Limbaugh came along, Farber said to himself, he said, you know, Barry, why didn't you think of that? 
because it just never would have occurred to him to criticize the president. I think he told me, I, I, and this is one of my favorite lines I picked up in hundreds of interviews. He said, you know, the one thing I, I didn't want in a guest was someone who couldn't ablib a belch after a Bulgarian wedding or something like that. You know, just a hysterical way of phrasing it. But he was basically saying, I just couldn't bore people. And, and those guys were the paradigms. And so this is the radio landscape. And the broader media landscape, people forget that this is only three decades ago, but the media was three broadcast nightly news programs on ABC, NBC, and CBS. CNN in, in 1988 is like eight, maybe, eight, I, I always forget if they started in 79 or 80, but it's, it's eight or nine years old. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty focused on hard news, um, and, and it's not a force politically. It, it has reshaped things a little bit because we now have a 24-hour news cycle, right? If something used to, used to be if something happened at noon, if it didn't rise to the level of the broadcast networks interrupting the daytime soap operas, um, that it just sort of waited for, for the nightly news. But that's, that's late, too. I mean, they, they, there are sentences, you know, Gulf, first Gulf War. It's not really until the right. 90s they become a big force, yeah. Right, right. That, yeah, that's sort of what I'm saying. It's, it's more the Clarence Thomas hearings in the Gulf War in the early 90s where we start to really get this moment of, hey, the news now happens in real time. Um, and, and that's actually – you set me up for a nice segue here. Because conservatives are frustrated because this media is dominated by CNN, those three broadcast networks, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and maybe the Wall Street Journal. And, and like, you know, Walter Cronkite used to say famously, and that's the way it is. That's how he closed his newscast. And Laura Ingram, the talk radio host, has told uh, the story of how her father used to say back to the TV, I know it's not, Walt, um, <laughs> expressing the frustration where conservatives feel like their viewpoints are not represented. They feel like the issues they care about are not being covered. They feel like the questions being asked are not what they care about. And they see their values as kind of being marginalized in this world. And the best example, um, I happened across an interview. Uh, this is a great example of, of how you research talk radio. The Library of Congress started an archive in like 2005. And they only really record one show a week. And you actually have to go to the library to listen to these shows. They record them off the internet, but we have these copyright laws that say, that they can't then put them on like a web server. So you actually have to sit there on a, a desktop computer plugged in to listen to them. Well, I happened to listen to one you know, show that, that G. Gordon Liddy did. And G. Gordon Liddy, for younger listeners, um, was one of the guys who, who became infamous from Watergate and then had a sort of second life after he gets out of prison. In, in the 90s, he becomes a pretty big, nationally syndicated talk radio host. He went by the moniker The G-Man. And he talked about how many different ways he knew how to kill someone. You know, he was very interesting, entertaining. Um, and, and he was pretty, you know, he was eclipsed by the 2000s, by the Sean Handys of the world. But for a while in the 90s, he was probably the second biggest nationally syndicated conservative host. Um, and I happened across this interview he did with, uh, he had a guest on and they were taking callers. And this caller calls up and says, you know, the moment that I understood media bias was the Gulf War. Um, I would listen to Norman Schwarzkopf's press conferences which you know, are being aired on radio stations, they're being aired on CNN, and people are seeing them in total. And he said, then I watched the nightly news, and what they'd be saying about what Schwarzkopf said was not what I took away from it. It wasn't what I said. It was just, I said, well, where do these people get this? It was just dripping with bias. And that was how a lot of conservatives felt. And Rush Limbaugh comes along, and even for conservatives who didn't think that there was media bias, they say, my God, this is what conservative media sounds like. This is what media from my values and my judgments and my standpoint and my worldview sounds like. And it's refreshing to them. They feel represented. Um, and Limbaugh, it's important to note, Limbaugh sets out to be an entertainer. 
He's a radio guy. He's been a DJ. You know, I think he's fired four times as a DJ in the 70s. Um, he's spinning Elton John records, and, and between it, he's using some of the same shtick he uses in his talk shows. His talk show. He's talking about uh, broadcasting excellence and with talent on loan from God and you know, that kind of stuff. And he's spinning records, and he keeps getting fired because he had one very big flaw as a DJ, which was he didn't particularly like to listen to his bosses. Um, and, and he liked stunts. You know, he was the kind of guy who's calling the pizza place and, and ordering 100 pizzas to be sent to the competitor station. Um, you know, the, that kind of hijinks. Um, and, and he takes the fun of that and applies it to a talk show. He's having a great time. He's doing parodies. He's got nicknames. He's definitely crossing boundaries at times. But he's just, you know, everything is with a wink and a nod. It's fun. It's funny. It's unexpected. No one knows what he's going to say from day to day except to expect the unexpected. Um, and, and, yes, it's conservative because that's the values that he picked up at the dinner table from his father um, years earlier in, in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. And he, But he, he's, he's melding that with the entertainment and the hijinks of a DJ. It's, you know, I, I, I use the same examples. I try to rotate them when I'm talking to audiences because there's so many of them that are great. But instead of warning about the, the perils of communism, and, and remember, he goes on the air, 88, nationally, uh, the Cold War is still a thing, although it's winding down. He talks about Gorbatsovs, which is the way the left and the mainstream media react when somebody brings up Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, and and Gorbatsovs have their own theme song, and their theme song is... The Imperial March from Star Wars, Darth Vader's music, because he's signaling that, that Gorbachev is evil, communism is evil, and my God, these people are making fools of themselves, falling all over themselves to praise Gorbachev. And this is how he talks about the evils of communism. Or he has uh, wilderness updates, where they're, they're signaled by the playing of Andy Williams' Born Free that's overlaid with mortar blasts and shotgun sounds and squawking animals. And it was Limbaugh's way to make fun of environmentalists. It was, you know, he, he would then read a news story that he picked out about how ridiculous they were being. Um, and, and this is right before, like, the spotted owl controversy and things like that. You know, it, it fits. Um, or I'll give you one last example because this stuff is fun. He does this um, mini-series thing. And, and again, I feel like half the time when I'm telling these stories that half the audience is like, well, what the hell is this guy talking about? You know, this is like ancient history in a world that where everybody's listening to things digitally in podcasts like this. But it used to be that on your, your three networks um, when, when I was a kid, they would hype endlessly these mini-series. Something where it would be like two hours on Sunday night or maybe three. I think it was like 8 to 11. Sunday night usually like Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday. And Limbaugh does this teaser for one called Gulf War One, And it is – Basically, they, they'd have this, this big theatrical music at the beginning, and, and you would have like sort of a pre-credit sequence, and then it would go into this list, and it would have this you know, uh, really uplifting music and theatrical music, and, and it would list the cast. And Limbaugh does this whole cast, and it's definitely got a political perspective. Every conservative being cast has, is played by a tough, manly actor or a, a leading gorgeous starlet. Um, you know, Limbaugh, I think, was played by Sylvester Stallone, and, and I think Limbaugh played, like, Norman Schwarzkopf or something like that, you know, but, but the casting was funny. He had, uh, Betty White was Barbara Bush, um, and Ringo Starr was Yasser Arafat, and James Earl Jones was Colin Powell, like, he, and I found that the, this trailer, um, I, I think I found it on a, a cassette uh, in an archive somewhere, 
But like Limbaugh was playing it back on like an anniversary show, and he's like, "I can't believe we did this." He had even forgotten that he had done something like this. But this is what it was. It was this great show. But what happens is um, that that Limbaugh starts getting these callers, and these callers are saying, "Thank God you're on the air, Rush. We finally have a voice." All those people who felt marginalized by that media landscape that you were asking me about are are thrilled to get this. And it transforms the entire landscape because a lot of people in radio take away from it that there is this huge audience that wants conservatism, that are desperate for conservatism. And it leads to them making these choices about who to put on the air that that leads to, you know, I I don't want to truncate the story, but there's no way for me to give the entire book to the audience here without just a monologue. But basically, that's that's what triggers the dominoes that start to fall as people in the radio business and then the television business and then then the digital world make decisions that are mostly driven by profit and that lead us to the world we are in today where there is tons of conservative opinion media that sounds very much like what Limbaugh pioneered. to kind of transition our conversation a little bit. So we've been talking about Rush and he is a, you know, he's the king of, of early talk radio. Um, but one of the bits about the book, which I found you know, most intriguing, uh, and there's more of this in your dissertation than there, than there is in, in, in the book. Um, but it's, it's about how, you know, it's reminding our audience, again, we're looking back through an era of 20 years, 30 years of right wing dominance in this space. Um, but that's, that's, it didn't have to be that way. It wasn't always that way. And you know in the book that there was actually as late as 93, a majority, more than half of talk radio hosts were considered, you know, I don't know, left-wing, liberal, Democrat, uh, some, but they weren't, they weren't, you know, Rush and Hannity and the people we've become uh, familiar with today. So once upon a time, there was left and right-wing voices who did very well on talk radio, but that, that, that stopped in the 90s, um, there was a moment of transition, um, but by, you know, by the 2000s, the overwhelming majority of voices in the talk radio space are conservative or right wing. Um, so maybe you can describe some of these early left wing talk radio hosts and then explain why does that happen? Why is the right win this space? Well, I, I don't think there was ever really strong like left wing talk, which is to say that there wasn't a lot of what Rush um, – does on the left that, that succeeded. But what you do have is most hosts who lean left. Um, and you have plenty of local hosts who succeed doing what Rush does on the left. People like Randy Rhodes was the biggest thing in Palm Beach. Uh, somebody told me a story uh, where Rush complained um, because Rush broadcasts well, – this is after he moves to Florida. And he broadcasts his show from um, down there and he get in his car to go home, flip on his station, and there's Randy Rhodes ranting from the left. And uh, Rush, they, they say to Rush, well, Rush, we, we hear your complaint, but this is what her ratings are. And Rush never asked again. <laughs> she, she was killing in the ratings. And there are people like this in a lot of local markets. And what happens is, first of all, as they try to find a liberal Rush in the mid-90s, they try people like Mario Cuomo and Gary Hart, failed politicians. Um, or or they, were, they were successful, but they, they had lost their last elections in a lot of cases. And they don't get – they're not radio entertainers. One thing that is crucial to radio success, it seems, is that people have some radio training. They have some radio skills. Rush starts out as a DJ, right? Well, a lot of hosts, left, right, and center, have been successful. They were DJs first. You know, I think Tom Hartman, who is, is the probably the most successful liberal host out there, started as like a country DJ in like his teens. 
that they, you get the sense of the medium or people start as like legal analysts, you know, who would guess with people. And then the, somebody out there heard them, you know, a producer or a, a radio executive heard them and said, you know, this guy sounds good. Let's give him a show. And, and that kind of radio skill is what's led to success. People like Cuomo would say they make a great point and then they turn around and say, but on the other hand, well, that kind of nuance doesn't make for a particularly good show. So that happens um, at the same time that you see uh, all conservative stations start to crop up, starting in places like Seattle and San Francisco. And as people experiment with branding stations as all conservative and as those stations do well, you know, people I think I heard over and over again from radio executives was, look, we're not the most creative lot. We're lemmings. Um, we, you know, we, we sort of follow where people are going because the first question your boss is going to ask you when you try a new format and you say, I want to switch this station to this format is where is that working? Because it's safe to do something that's working somewhere else. It's not safe when you're over here saying, well, I, I want to try this totally different thing. Nobody's ever done this, but I think it'll work. Well, if that works, great. You're going to be really successful. But if it flops, you might be out of a job. So you have that element of it. Um, and as all conservative stuff starts to succeed, more and more people in the radio business think that's the key to it, um, to success in talk radio. And as they do more and more of that, the audience for liberal talk gives up on AM radio. And so by the time you get things like Air America, um, the, the sort of vaunted, hyped network, and, and I could spend an hour telling you why Air America alone failed, because there's so many things that were just indigenous to Air America that were unique to Air America. But by the time Air America comes along, it needs a massive budget um, to promote these stations so that the potential listening audience comes back to AM radio that gives these stations a shot. And Air America makes the same mistake. They, instead of fail politicians, they try people like Al Franken, Janine Garofalo, people who you say, oh my God, those people are funny. I like them in, in this world or, of entertainment. But if you listen to what they say their mission is, it's to give the other half of the country a voice. This is the George W. Bush years. It's to speak for people. It's to balance the airwaves, none of which is to put the best show on. And I'll tell you, we've seen the opposite thing happen when you get conservatives who try to do late night comedy. But they, it doesn't really work. And the reason is that what they hear when they watch The Daily Show or they watch Stephen Colbert is something nastier and more snarky and more politically driven than what I think it actually is. And I think this is what happens to the left on talk radio. What they're trying to imitate is what they hear, but what they're hearing is not what actually is happening, if that makes sense. Right, or right. Or what the show actually is. Or what the, their not, listeners are, are hearing. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. They're not trying to put on the best show. Okay, so that, that's one big, big, big piece of this. You know, for liberal radio to succeed by the 2000s, you need someone who's going to be like a liberal Limbaugh to come along with that level of talent who can catalyze every show on a station. What do I mean by that? I mean that, that people are tuning in before that person's show, sort of ex getting anticipating that, or people who are sticking with the, the station afterwards. They might leave their radio on um, so that, that he's giving ratings to the shows before him and after him, um, and that people are hearing ads for another show, and they might say, hey, I'm going to give this a shot because I like this station. Um, and, and you need that, and you need promotional budgets and all kinds of things, um, and you need hosts who really get what they're doing. And, and that's where you are in the early 2000s. But there is another element of this. Anytime you, you, you ask like 50% of the people in the radio business, you know, why hasn't liberal radio succeed? And they get very angry at the question. They said that, that, that the premise is wrong. They say, we have liberal radio. It's called NPR. Right, right, and right. What they, what, what, and on one level, they're right. And on one level, they're wrong. And where they're wrong is that NPR 
and uh, the other formats I'm about to, to mention do not try to be Rush Limbaugh. They are not political advocacy media. And writing them off as the liberal talk radio or, or depicting them that way skews our politics because there's one side that has a, a real big ideological megaphone that's affecting policy battles and elections and things. And the other side doesn't have that. And so you have a very skewed um, landscape if you think, well, the mainstream media, you know, this conservative media is balanced. Rush used to say, I am equal time because I'm balancing the mainstream media. And yes, media bias is a thing. I, I know that that's going to shock, you know, conservative listeners out there who say, oh, my God, a liberal academic finally admits it. Um, I, I hear you. But that media bias is what I was talking about earlier, which is to say that the, the story selection. Uh, is skewed by kind of the fact that most journalists come from a liberal cultural world. They are surrounded by like-minded people. What they think is news is influenced by that. What questions they ask are influenced by that. So it, it's not the equivalent. But there's, but, yeah, there's this thing between unconscious bias that shows, you know, the fact that most journalists and main, mainstream media outlets are, you know, are Democrats or are, or are on the left. And that affects the what the stories they choose to tell and investigate. But there's never seen subconscious or unconscious bias and intentional conscious bias, right? Like using right. the platform explicitly uh, to advance a set of ideological goals. So I mean, right. your your point's well taken. Yeah. So yes, that's absolutely true. And so then your audience is out there probably saying, "Well, why is this guy saying that that answer is partly right?" That. And the answer is that, again, this comes back to the number one thing that you need to understand about talk radio. You know, if I was giving a quiz to students, the answer I'd want is it's a business. And from a business standpoint, you have a lot of programming, spoken word programming, that appeals to what I've taken to, to calling the, the three legs of a, uh, a democratic electoral coalition. So, like, if you picture one of those three-legged stools that you, you'll see sometimes um, – there are sort of three pillars to the modern, what I, what I call the Obama Democratic Coalition. There are minority voters, and those voters are served by very strong, very popular, what we call either urban or African-American talk radio formats um, or Latino talk radio formats that are very popular, that do very well, but that are a little bit less political. They, they talk about politics. They can be political, but they're also lifestyle uh, conversations about their communities. Some of the uh, urban or African-American talk radio have some religious programming on there as well. Um, they, they talk about the, the issues confronting urban communities. It's a little bit less of the, the national politics thing. Um, so then the second uh, leg of that stool is young voters. Well, there's this thing that, that we call guy talk. And one thing we haven't talked about at all is the other transcendent talent of this radio generation with Limbaugh, and that is Howard Stern. And he does the guy talk thing. It is occasionally political, you know, especially now, much more so, I think, than in his terrestrial radio days. He does, you know, a decent amount of, of national politics, but he also can be talking about all sorts of sexual things that we won't get into um, and pushing boundaries that, that got his stations when he was on terrestrial radio uh, in trouble with the FCC all the time. Um, and this format is, is certainly not Limbaugh-esque. It, it's not political, but it appeals to young listeners, young demographics who might otherwise be politically looking for liberal talk. And then the third pillar of this sort of Democrat coalition is very highly educated suburban professional types and urban 
you know, professional types, and they're listening to NPR. NPR is news. It attempts to provide balance. They'll have conservative guests. They'll have liberal guests. But it's coming from that cultural perspective. And so what happens is there just isn't the same market that there was in 1988 for conservatives who felt marginalized, who felt like they didn't have a voice. You don't get that except in two moments. It's not a coincidence that Air America comes along in like 2004 at the same moment that some initiative called Democracy Radio is taking um, Ed Schultz and Stephanie Miller, who would both end up being pretty successful, into national syndication. Um, and, and that is Democrats feel voiceless. Republicans, after the midterm elections in 2002, control both houses of Congress. They control the White House. They control the Supreme Court. And Democrats are really frustrated with the mainstream media over what they felt like was skewed coverage of basically what they saw as a stolen election in 2000, um, as well as the run up to the war in Iraq, where they felt like, you know, George Bush is lying and the media is not calling him on it. And so that becomes a very big moment for uh, liberal media. And, and then we see it, MSNBC goes liberal not too long thereafter in this moment, recognizing that liberals feel like they're voiceless and want a voice. And then we've seen it in, in the last couple of years with podcasts, Pod Save America uh, in sort of the center left um, and, and things like Chapo Trap House on the, the very, very far left. But you're seeing liberal podcasts succeed in the Trump era. Why? Because, again, think back to 2017. What do liberals feel? They feel scared. They feel marginalized. Republicans control both houses of Congress. You've got what, what most liberals think is an abomination in the White House um, who's a Republican. You've got a conservative Supreme Court. You, you don't really have the liberal advocacy media where they feel like, hey, somebody's out there feeling the way I feel and expressing it. And I can listen to this and sort of pump my fist and say, yeah. You, you go, guy. You know, you, you give me that, that voice. It makes sense that – and, well, in, uh, in contrast to, say, you know, late 80s, um, in 2016, well, the podcast space is, is a lot more wide open, right? In the sense where – whereas in the 80s, I mean, I think as you, you've been pointing us to, if you are a left-wing nascent talk radio host, you're a local host and you have an interest in going wider, going regional, going national – like a, like a right wing host. Well, the problem is you're competing against you're, you're competing for listeners um, who are have center left alternatives like NPR and and plus they're they're government subsidized uh, to to some extent. So you have competition for those listeners, but on the right there isn't. But in the podcast space, well, it's it's a it's a relatively wide open field. Um, so it makes sense that Chapo Trap House and Pod Save America would have a lot more room for growth versus, you know, I guess, their corollary thirty years earlier in the late eighties. Yeah, I mean, and this is a question I get all the time, um, but from people, whether they be on Twitter or in interviews or things, is you know, what's the future of this? And, and I have to always append my sort of standard um, uh, buyer beware warning, which is. I'm a historian. I'm good at the past. I'm not so good at the future. You know, if I was good at the future, I probably would have realized Donald Trump was going to get elected president. I would have made some wagers on it in 2015. And instead of doing interviews behind this book, I probably would be on a beach somewhere, you know, sipping something nice and enjoying my, my vacation world that, that's every day of the year. Um, so that, that's, the, that's the warning. Don't take what I'm saying and go run and put your life savings on it. Because that's never a wise decision, as I promise you, my fantasy teams uh, prove week after week. <laughs> you but poor, poor Eagles fans. Point, 
uh, <laughs> out there. I, I will say that the future of this is I think that the, the programming that you hear on AM radio, that the programming that Rush Limbaugh ushers in that starts on AM radio in 1996 moves to cable television with Fox News, today is also found in the blogosphere, that market, the market for that program is going to re- remain robust. I don't know that it will be on AM radio because I think the AM radio stick, as it's known, is in jeopardy. Why do I think that? Because each year they come out with new cars that are more and more integrated with your phone. Pretty soon you're going to – I think at some point we're going to have universal Wi-Fi um, where instead of having to worry about data plans and, and oh, my cell phone you know, plan just cut out there. We, we, we have a blank you know, or, or an area with no good coverage. So my podcast just kind of blipped or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. It's all going to go away. And people, the problem with terrestrial radio in this world is, is people don't want to listen to like 22 minutes, an hour of commercials. Um, we're, we're a DVR world. Uh, and so people are going to maybe revolt against AM radio. You know, how, how many people under the age of 30 are listening to the AM radio every week? I think it's less than people over 60 and probably significantly. So I think that that radio, AM radio as a delivery mechanism might be in jeopardy. But the content is going to flourish um, because there's a market for it. You know, one reason that the first two all conservative stations succeed, and there were stations earlier that were all conservative maybe that were not branded that way, but the first two stations branded as all conservative talk succeed in Seattle and San Francisco, not exactly uh, bastions of conservatism. And the reason is that in a major market, you know, like that, you only need three to five percent of the audience to be successful, um, and that's a reminder that to to have a really great podcast, you need a fraction of the national electorate, a fraction of people who care about politics and young voters. Um, you know, e- even if you look at the polls, they they show what you know somewhere between sixty and seventy percent of young voters lean left, and even young conservatives tend to lean differently um, than, than their elders on on issues like gay rights or climate change, things like that. Um, so, you know, the, there are definitely people out there, though, that are conservative. It might be a slightly different flavor of conservatism, but that third of the, the electorate in, under the age of like 40 um, probably don't feel as comfortable airing their views with their peers. With, they're worried about being accused of, well, that, how can you be a Republican in the Trump area? That's racist. That's this. That's that. Or how dare you, you say this? You, you, know, you want people to die from not having health care. We've all heard the, the, the lines of thinking, right? Well, what conservative podcasts people like Ben Shapiro give them is uh, a feeling where, hey, I can go somewhere. This is like my safe space. I, I, I can go somewhere where someone's going to say what I think and no one's going to accuse me of anything for listening to that. So I think there's going to be a market for that. But where podcasting changes everything is I think it's going to leave us with a much more diverse spoken word landscape than what happened with AM radio. And the reason for this is simple. One reason that conservative radio succeeds and liberal radio doesn't is that there is something known as a 50,000-watt stick. And and what that is, uh, we call them flamethrower stations. The best way I know to explain this to audiences is when I was a kid, I'm I'm a huge Philadelphia Phillies fan, which uh, breaks my heart on on almost yearly basis. But um, when when I was a kid, we'd take vacations and we'd go all the way – we'd go up to Maine – we go down to North Carolina, and at night, if you got went out in the car and you flipped on the radio, you could hear the 50,000-watt Philadelphia station that carried the Phillies games and listen to them on the radio because the signal was so strong. But there's a finite number of those stations. There's only a couple hundred of them. And 
what happens is as conservative radio starts to succeed in the 90s, they lock those stations down so that when Air America comes along, a lot of these big conglomerates that own clusters of stations in a city, so they might own six stations, um, they say, you know, let, let's put Air America on one of those stations. But their number one station in that market might be a conservative talk station, and that station, therefore, it has the best signal. It's heard all throughout the area. It doesn't cut out because, you know, you went one mile and, oops, there goes the station. Uh, it's cutting out. All you hear is static. Um, and they get the most promotional dollars because if you were a company, where would you put your promotional dollars? Behind your biggest moneymaker, right? It's not going to be that product that sells five a week. Um, and so that those stations get locked down with conservative talk. Well, in podcasting, there's this thing as a 50,000-watt station, right? You know, like, right, right. If you have a good, a decent enough microphone that you get for, you know, 100 bucks on the internet, 200 bucks, whatever it is, you have a good pair of headphones, you have some recording software, and you watch a few YouTube videos on how to produce audio or edit audio, um, you, you can do a podcast. And if your podcast is pretty good, it's, it's a lot like what happened for Rush Limbaugh in the late 80s. Because before he gets on those 50,000 watt stations, he's on outlier stations, stations that are, you know, outside of the major metro areas. You know, he might be on some small station based in some exurb of, of like St. Louis or Charlotte or whatever, you know, 50 miles outside of the city that's kind of a scratchy station. But he's so good that, that he's drawing listeners and that eventually puts him on those bigger stations. Well, if you're that good on a podcast, if you're saying what people want to hear, if you're entertaining them, if you're engaging them, if you're making their runs easier, um, you know, instead of looking at the clock on the treadmill, that they're engaged with what you're saying, then you're going to succeed in this world. And, and podcasting enables that. And not just for the left, but also for the center, which has struggled a lot, I think, to sort of cultivate opinion media. Because let's face it, uh, a lot of people say, well, centrism, there's no passion there. You know, where, where's the passion in that? Um, but, but, you know, if you did something good in the center that, that reached an audience, um, you can succeed commercially. So I think that the, the podcast world is going to be more ideologically diverse. I think you're starting to see some of the political impacts and we didn't really talk about those much here, but you're starting to see some of the same impacts on the left as you've seen on the right over the past three decades because of these podcasts where these podcasts are saying, well, you know, that democratic behavior is absolutely unacceptable. They are selling you out. Call your senator. Tell them to get up and fight, damn it. You know, th that kind of passion, you're starting to get that. Uh, and social media is doing some of the same things. Um, so you're, you're going to start to see that impact. But I think you're going to see a much more diverse spoken world world. However, I think that's a good thing. It should be clear from my conversation with Brian, and very much so if you read the book, that the medium of talk radio plays a vital role in ensuring Republican political dominance from the mid-90s until today, especially on the local and state level to a lesser extent on the federal level. But it may also be the death of GOP electoral fortunes in the future, and that's kind of the irony of talk radio. It's both key to its success and could be the key to its decline as a successful party uh, on the federal level. That's what talk radio does. It's the key the GOP ascent uh, in the 90s, aughts, and 10s, but it's become one of its fatal flaws, forcing it into policy stances that are broadly unpopular, selecting candidates that are unelectable in contested districts. So talk radio gave us Donald Trump in 2016, 
and the blue wave in 2018. That's the power that a niche media form can have. As you heard Brian say, only like three to 5% of listeners in San Francisco were needed to build a successful, all conservative, all day talk show uh, channel in that area. That, that exercises real power in, on politics across uh, the local, state, and federal levels. Podcasts have some of those same advantages that talk radio once enjoyed. People don't feel a sense of intimate connection to the TV network anchor doing the nightly news at 6.30. It's someone you might respect or look up to admire, I suppose, in some abstract sense, but not someone you feel that sense of intimate connection, someone you want to have a beer with after work. People do feel that way towards talk radio hosts, or they, or they have since the late 80s. Rush Limbaugh, people like him were expert at exploiting that sense of intimacy. The same thing can be true of podcasts. They're more like talk radio than they are like television. Think about it this way. Podcast hosts are now routinely selling out auditoriums across the country to do live podcast shows. Again, that's something you don't do with TV network anchors. They don't have live uh, audiences watching them give the nightly news. It's a very different relationship, and podcasts have that same advantage um, as a new media form. Underrepresented voices are getting a hearing because of podcasts, just like underrepresented voices in the 80s got a hearing because of talk radio. And you heard Brian talk about this, that a certain set of conservatives in the 1980s didn't hear people like them didn't see people like them on the tv or hear people like them advancing their points of view on radio so i think there are some really clear and interesting lessons we can take from the history of talk radio and apply to podcasting both now and what podcasting looks like in the future and how it's going to affect the next 10 20 30 years of american politics thanks for listening building tomorrow is produced by tess terrible if you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.